Well, we are in Romans chapter 11, and we're going to look at Romans 11, 33 through 36, and we're going to focus on the middle two verses there, but uh, we're going to read uh, all of these verses. This is the great doxology, the great word of praise that Paul pens at the end of uh, Romans 9 through 11. So read along with me, Romans 9 verse, I'm sorry, Romans 11 verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. So to him be glory forever. Amen. Well, it's interesting to watch a child get their first sense that life isn't always fair. It generally happens with siblings and sometime during their toddler years. And it's almost always connected to food, particularly food with sugar in it. Like your older sibling getting a bigger slice of cake than you do. And that cute little baby begins to look all of a sudden sad and disappointed and point and, and sign more or whatever you've taught them to do and communicate in whatever way he can, I want what he has. And it is not fair that I don't get it. I'll make everyone miserable until you recognize how I feel. Some of the earliest displays of anger are centered on just how unfair life seems to be when you don't get what you want. As we grow, our sense of injustice rises when we don't get the grade that we think we earned, when we're passed over for a promotion. In fact, so much of our marital problems comes down to a very active sense of what is fair and what is unjust. Who's gotten annoyed with your spouse? No hands. Because you've had to pick up after what they left out. Can't they just learn to put away their shoes? And maybe you're the spouse who's leaving it out, and you think, man, it is not fair. I left my coat on the couch so that I could find it again. I have no idea where it is. And many feel everything from cooking to diaper changing, from laundry to yard work, it's simply unfairly divided, and so we fight and devour one another. Our propensity to complain extends to God, too. We look around us and we assume everyone has a perfectly happy marriage, a plush bank account, and an ideal home. And it's easy to look at your life and you know your life and you realize you don't have any of those things. And you think, man, God, this isn't fair. I follow you. I give money to the church. I try to serve you. How come my life isn't what I expected? Maybe it's how come I'm not married yet or how come I married this one? Or, if you were to ever find yourself in a nation at war, as we see all around us, you might ask, why do I have to live in the midst of war? Why am I forced to flee or hide in this rubble? In many situations that feel outside of our control, we can turn to God and wonder, God, are you fair? These are real questions that we'll all wrestle through on some level. And the question isn't always wrong. 
simply reflects our pain, our brokenness, and confusion over the effects of living in the sin-cursed world. But how we question is the key. Do we let the trial hang in our hearts, producing bitterness or anger that, that boils over? Or do we submit our question to God? Do we consider the glorious wisdom, knowledge, power, mercy, sovereignty, and goodness of God at work in all of creation, including our problem, or do we assume that God can't be working through our confusion? Well, there are three men in our short two verses, Paul and the two men he quotes, Isaiah and Job. And Paul, Isaiah, Job, each in their own way, are questioning the fairness of God. They each have experienced God's blessings, but God takes that away to some degree in a way that they think is unfair. And in our two verses, Paul uses the language of Isaiah and Job to respond to his own doubts, to respond to his, his own questions about the fairness of God. And he responds by pointing his heart back to the only glorious God. So when God reveals truth that you find difficult to manage and you're drawn to doubt the fairness of God, let's turn away from our flawed views of God. Let's stop pretending like we can be his judge, determining what is best for our own life. And as we look at these three rhetorical questions from Isaiah and Job, we'll see three reasons to trust and turn to God when life seems unfair. Three reasons to turn and trust God when life seems unfair, when we're tempted to doubt his fairness. These questions are in the middle of Paul's doxology, his prayer of praise that concludes these three chapters. And they relate to the theme he's already brought up in verse 33, just in reverse order. Last week, you'll remember that we aim to stay surprised at the depths of God's attributes, that the foundational essence of who God is stirs us up to faithfully trust him. And so which three attributes does, God, uh, does Paul highlight in verse 33? Look back. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom, and the depth of the knowledge of God speaks of, first of God's deep riches, which speaks to his ownership and sovereignty over all things. He then speaks of God's deep wisdom, his discernment to determine what is best in every situation. And lastly, God's deep knowledge, the fact that he knows every passing thought of billions of people, all things that are, will be, have been, and could be, informs God's wise actions. And so now our three rhetorical questions in verses 34 and 35 address these th same themes just in reverse order. So last was mentioned knowledge, so he addresses that first in verse 34. He says, first with knowledge, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Asking a question. And then second, dealing with God's wisdom, or who has been his counselor? Or third, with God's riches, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And so as we study our text this morning, we know that God is always to be trusted, even when life seems unfair, because, well, first of all, God cannot be fully known. Number one, first reason to turn and trust God, when life seems unfair, God cannot be fully known. 
So turn back to Deuteronomy 29, 29. And as you're turning, stop and think. Use your heads here for a second. How is not fully knowing God supposed to motivate us to trust him more? I mean, some think if God can't be fully known, perhaps I can't trust him. As if God has some dark secret side to him, like a, like a man. But in reality, God reveals and he tells us everything we need to know about him so that we can trust him fully, even if we can't know him fully. So you're in Deuteronomy 29, 29. Read the first part of that verse with me. It famously says something that we probably remember. I, I think I quoted it last week. It says, the secret things belong to Yahweh our God. There are things that men are not meant to know, knowledge that simply can, we cannot handle. I think, frankly, part of our problem today is that we are not designed to keep up with 1,200 friends on Facebook, and yet somehow we are expected to do just that. We're not designed to know news from around the world as soon as it happens every single day. And even as we try to keep up with so much, reality is we hardly know our own thoughts or why we're doing what we're doing, let alone what's in the minds of tens of thousands of people in your own small city. And when Moses wrote, the secret things belong to Yahweh our God, I think that speaks to our limited ability to understand why and how everything happens the way it does. But verse 29 does not end with the secret things belong to the Lord. It continues, right? Read with me. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of his law. See, God reveals what he wants us to know. So then we should remain confident in what God has revealed, but, but cautious in what he has not revealed. And trust him with the secret things. And that includes the things in your life that seem incredibly unfair. So, so go back to Romans chapter 9. We're going to look at Romans chapter 9 first before we get into Romans 11. The, the last three chapters, Paul has actually been wrestling with the fairness of God, especially as it connects to God's sovereignty. So in your in Romans 9, look at verse 11. Paul says, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, Rebecca, was told, your older child will serve the younger. Completely the opposite of what normally happened. And then he goes on to say, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau, I hate it. So, so God does this before any, either Jacob or Esau had been born to show, why does it say in verse 11? That God's purpose of election might continue. And it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with what these young men's wills would be. And you read that and you think, man, how is God fair when he says things like this? How is this something that we can say is good? 
And so most of us ask what verse 14 asks. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? To ask if God is unjust is to ask if he is not fair. Justice and fairness are connected. They're related words. But Paul continues, and he goes on to highlight God's sovereign choice to save some without regard to human free will. Look what he says in verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And this sovereignty isn't just over salvation, but it's also over the hardening of some hearts. He goes on to say, verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So again, most of us wonder, how is this fair? And we ask along with Paul, verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault, right? I mean, if God is that sovereign, if God is that in control, if God hardens some and, and has mercy and shows mercy to others, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will, verse 19 continues. And Paul's response is really simple. It's let God be God. Look at verse 20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use? Beloved, we must let God be God and trust that he has a good purpose in it all. Verse 22 tells us what this purpose is. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, see, there has to be vessels of destruction in order for God to demonstrate wrath, to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience. You see, there has to be somebody that doesn't believe in order for God to show patience to, right? He shows with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order, here's the purpose, to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. We understand the fullness and the richness of God's attributes of who God is because there is unbelief. God purposes to show his glory in everything. And then you go ahead a couple chapters to chapter 11, go ahead and flip there, when Paul talks about how God hardened Israel and, and how they used to be his, his, his chosen people who God had put his blessing on and even chosen a, a good king like David to reign over them, and then he begins to punish them and scatter them, and he, and he shifted his blessings to include Gentiles into the church, may even to the point where the church is predominantly Gentile, and he again points to his sovereign plan in it all in Romans 11, verse 8. It says, it is written, God gave them, the Israelites, a spirit of stupor. God gave them eyes that would not see. God gave them ears that would not hear down to this very day. And so again, Paul tells us this is all part of God's plan. He hardened some to accomplish his good and perfect purposes for all time. And so again, Paul tells us, verse 22 of chapter 11, note then, the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. See, part of God's perfect plan to bring men and women from every nation to know him 
necessitated the hardening of some. And in God's mystery, that's how it had to happen. And in his wisdom, that includes the hardening of some and showing grace to others. This is fair because this is how God works. And in the end, it is best for us too to give glory to his name. And how all that works, we don't always know the answer. And that's okay. So Paul asks, using the words of Isaiah 40, in verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord? We can't understand everything there is to know about God or his ways. I mean, this comes right after verse 33, right? How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. We can't trace it. We can't understand where these, his ways go. And God is not obligated to explain anything to us. And yet in his infinite kindness, he helps us to see who he is, to know his glorious grace. So we can conclude with Paul, as verse 36 says, to him be glory forever. Amen. Because we know what is actually fair for us, don't we? Romans 6.23 reminded us, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we earn. See, we are like children before God our Father who, simply, who we simply need to trust that he has our best in mind. Like the toddler who accidentally drops his beloved popsicle in the dirt and wants to retrieve it and immediately put it back into his mouth, right? A good parent will take that popsicle from the toddler, either rinse it off or throw it away. And even though they may complain, we know what was best. And so we're drawn to complain too to God, aren't we? But we need to trust that God can't be fully known. We can't comprehend all the reasons God chooses to bring in good and bad into our lives, but he does. And he promises that all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. So let God be God and trust him always. Well, the second reason to turn and trust God when life seems unfair, number two, God cannot grow in wisdom. God cannot grow in wisdom. There was a show that recently ended called Undercover Boss. You guys ever seen that show? Or at least you've heard of it, right? So it's a show called Undercover Boss, uh, and the premise is really simple. It's, it's a high-positioned executive or an owner of a company. He goes undercover, as or she, as an entry-level employee in his or her own company. And he gets trained to do the grunt work, and at the end of the week, his identity is finally revealed. And sometimes the boss learns a lot from his own employees, and other times it's funny to see someone teach the expert on what to do. Hey, it's sad sometimes to hear how we pray to God. Sometimes we can try and reason with God, saying essentially, God, you know how I tried to do right by others. If you were fair, you'd get me what I really wanted, right? God, you should know I deserve this. We're like that low-level employee telling the executive what to do. 
So why do we think we should give God advice in our prayers? God can't grow in wisdom. And who do we think we are? Paul has the same thought. And so he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 13 again in Romans 11, verse 34. In the second half of the verse, he asks another question, focusing on the wisdom of God. He says, or who has been his counselor? Who has been God's counselor? Well, well, no one, of course. But to help you understand the context of Isaiah's question, let's go back to Isaiah 39 and 40 for a minute. So go ahead and go back in your Bibles to Isaiah 39 and 40. Isaiah chapter 39 and 40. Isaiah is prophesying mostly during King Hezekiah's reign, and he was one of the good kings, but Judah faced an existential threat during his reign, literally a threat to the whole nation's survival. The nation of Assyria, Assyria, had just destroyed Israel, the the northern half of the kingdom. The two kingdoms had been split for uh, several hundred years at this point. And then Assyria and its massive army marched on Jerusalem, setting up a siege. In Isaiah 37, God miraculously delivers Jerusalem as an angel of Yahweh goes out and kills 185,000 soldiers. I think one of the most understated verses in the whole Bible where it just says, you know, and the angel of Yahweh went out and killed 185,000. And then they left. That's all we're told. Like, what did that look like? I would love to see what that looked like. I mean, did he go out and fight or did he, did he like die all of a sudden? Like, what happened? But whatever happened, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers died. And King Sennacherib returns to Nineveh and is actually uh, assassinated by his own children. Well, the Babylonians, uh, another rising power uh, up north and east, hear of this kind of battle that had gone on. They don't necessarily know that it was God. And, and they come to pay tribute to Judah because Assyria was not friends with Babylon. And so the Babylonians come and they seek an alliance with Judah. And Hezekiah goes and he shows them all of his wealth. And, and then Isaiah tells him this, Isaiah 39, verse 5. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of Yahweh of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says Yahweh. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, the word of Yahweh that you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days at least. I mean, talk about a selfish man for his children. But no doubt, he's trying to put a spin the best way he can here. You read that, and, and you can't help but think, doesn't this seem a bit arbitrary? I mean, doesn't this seem a bit severe? He showed them his stuff, and now everything's going to the Babylonians? So no doubt there were questions about the fairness of God even here. 
And I think it's telling that there's these doubts and these questions because God immediately turns and tells Isaiah to comfort and remind his people to always trust me. Isaiah 40, verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. So yes, there is going to come a day of intense difficulties. Babylon will take away everything. King's sons will become eunuchs in the palaces of Babylon. And yet, God says that is not the end. There will be an end to warfare, and God will even pardon their iniquities. And lest you think that God's hand will be too short to both punish and then to save his people in the future, he says this, verse 8, Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So who are you to question God's plans? And then we get the quote from Romans chapter 11 in verses 12 through 14. Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? That means, you know, like in the palm of his hand. Who has measured the waters of the earth in the palm of his hand? Obviously nobody but God. And marked off the heavens with a span, you know, measured how far distances are between stars and things like that. Only God enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. You look at the deserts and you think, how could you measure the dust of the desert? You couldn't. Who has weighed the mountains and the scales? I mean, if you've gone to any mountainous region, if you've had to leave Michigan to do that, but you, you had to go to some mountainous region, you find these massive mountains and think, who could measure these massive mountains? Well, God can. And who would put the hills in a balance? Then he says, who has measured the spirit of Yahweh? In other words, who has, who has known or directed the spirit of Yahweh? And then this is our quote, right? And what man shows him his counsel? Well, what man goes and tells God, you know what, you should do it like this. I think you should do it like that. Verse 14, whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Literally, nobody can do these things, of course. Well, he continues, we could read this, this would be awesome to read, but we're gonna skip down to verse 25 because we're gonna end a little bit earlier. Verse 25, to whom then will you compare me, God says, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. So he says, verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He's talking about the heavens and the stars and all that. And he says, he who brings out their host by number. The host is a way to describe all the stars, right? Who brings out each one by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one star is missing. <laughs> Continues verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. 
Don't you see, God cannot grow in wisdom. You can't give counsel to God. You can't change God's ways and plans and purposes because you have somehow reasoned with God and convinced him that you're right and he needs to change. So why do we say things like, you know what, God is trying to get my attention right here. Or you know what, God was trying to give you hope while you were in the hospital. God doesn't try to do anything. In his infinite wisdom, God does whatever God wants. Whenever he wants. With whomever he wants. And when you look up to the stars and you see how massive the expanse is, he calls everyone by name. We, we don't even know all the stars. Scientists are continuing adding numbers by them. God named every single one. And if you look within in the intricacies of, I don't know, like your ear, right? Think about the ear. You know how you hear? It's these little bones that are vibrating, right? And, you know, the, the medical people in here are going to roll their eyes, but just... This is a layman's attempt. There's little bones that are vibrating and they send these things to back into our brain and our and electric impulses make sense of these vibrations to somehow interpret what we're hearing as, as words and sounds and music and, and all these things that we enjoy. I mean, think how magnificent that is and complex that is. Every cell in your body is doing exactly what God designed it to do. So if your attention was got, God got it. God doesn't try to do anything. In his wisdom, God does. So let us trust a majestic God like that. Let us wait on him and him alone. You're in Isaiah 40 still. Look at verse 31. But they who wait for Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God can't grow in wisdom. And he is for his own. Third reason to trust God when life seems unfair. Number three, God cannot be bought or swayed. God cannot be bought or swayed. Back to Romans 11. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10 tells us that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Or perhaps equally difficult, a blight is the severity of poverty. Worldwide, many families sell their daughters into some form of slavery to pay off debts. According to the United Nations statistics, there's 6.5 million enslaved in the commercial sex work industry and 28 million enslaved in some form of forced labor with no viable way to leave and get out. To give you a frame of reference for the scale of the problem today, at the peak there were 4 million slaves living in the United States. With extreme poverty, families are vulnerable to do the worst kinds of abuse or to be subject to it. But God, on the other hand, he has everything he needs. So to proclaim the glory of God's wealth, 
Paul asks another rhetorical question. Verse 35. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Essentially, is God so poor that he can be bought? Is God so poor that he's subject to various whims of the rich and the powerful and the wealthy? Of course not. And Paul quotes Job 41 to make his point. And as we close, let's go to Job 40 and 41. Turn to Job 40 and 41. You can loan to God so that you can get him to do what you want him to do. Like Paul and Isaiah, Job also questions the legitimacy and fairness of God's ways. As no doubt many who find themselves in very difficult situations around the world do. And if you know the story of Job, you can understand why Paul uses Job You see, Paul lost all of his children, all of his wealth, and even his health in the course of a few short days. It got so bad that his wife wanted him to simply curse God and die. But Job turned to God, complained a bit, pointed out the injustice, how everything simply wasn't fair. And at the end of the book, God finally answers Job Job 40, verse 7. So God talks to Job and he says, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Of course, you cannot do any of those things. And so Job is indeed humbled. And as Job is confused over the intensity of his suffering, even questioning the fairness of God, God answers with threefold chapters, helping Job to realize that he can't be fully known. God can't grow in wisdom, and God cannot be bought or swayed or influenced. God makes his point with questions designed to humble us and glorify him. The chapter Paul quotes in Romans 11 is chapter 41. And Paul begins this chapter like this. Read with me. Job 41, verse 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Now, some say Leviathan is some sort of alligator or some sort of large um, sea creature of some sort, but, but you can do all those things with an alligator, right? And as God continues, it's very clear that Leviathan must be what we would call some sort of dinosaur. Look at verse 5. Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? 
You know, do they, do they you know, pedal Leviathan boots? Maybe a Leviathan stake? Nobody does this to Leviathan. Verse 7 continues, can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? The most intense and um, the most strong sources of, of human weaponry could not get into his head. He continues, lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? God shifts to make his point. I made Leviathan. I control Leviathan. Can anyone stand before me and live? Does anyone have the right to call me unfair, God says? And then the verse Paul quotes is 41, verse 11. Who, God says, has first given to me that I should have to repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I created and own everything. I can't be indebted to you. God's power and wealth means that we don't sway God with our gifts. We can't love him enough. We can't serve him enough to move his hand to somehow get him to do what we want him to do. Just like we can't leash Leviathan, so we can't leash God. Even when life seems unfair, we can trust in an omnipotent God, an all-powerful God who has promised to work all things out for our good and for his glory. We can't be bought or swayed to do anyone's bidding. He, he can't. He does all according to his good and glorious purpose. And so when you have your trials and when you're sinned against and you're tempted to stay angry and, and, and be defeated and you begin to question, is God really fair? Listen to God's words to Job and let God be God. He can't be bought or swayed. He can't grow in wisdom. And we must accept the mystery that we can't know everything there is to know about how and why God works. Only that he is sovereign, glorious, and worthy of a life devoted to praising him. As we close, I want to give you a quote from Horatius Bonner. He was a 19th century Scottish pastor. And he gives us a reason why we tend to not trust our glorious and sovereign God and even why we cry out unfair to God. He says, If I admit that God's will regulates the great movements of the universe, I must admit that it equally regulates the small. It must do this, for the great depend upon the small. So the minutest movement of my will is regulated by the will of God. And thus it comes out, I do not like the thought of God having all the disposal of my destiny. And if he gets his will, I am afraid that I shall not get mine. And so Bonner concludes, man's dislike at God's sovereignty arises from his suspicion of God's heart. Man's dislike at God's sovereignty arises from a suspicion of God's heart. 
if you think you know God better than he knows himself, if you think God's love demands that he acts a certain way, the way that you think he should act, then you will find yourself repeatedly discouraged at the lack of perceived fairness that you see all around you. Instead, we have to let God be our glorious God and constantly turn to trust in his sovereign, powerful, and perfectly loving hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We're grateful for the truths that we found in it. Lord, we certainly are susceptible to cry out against the perceived unfairness of your hand at work when you see the effects of sin and we see evil around us. Lord, and yet you are gracious to us. You open our eyes to see who you are. And Lord, I pray that we would be able to spend time at the end of Job and just ruminate in the reality of you being awesome and powerful and God only God and may we trust that you have us in the palm of your hand that same palm that measures the ocean has us kept forever with you so Lord help us to turn to you to trust in you when we are weak to be grateful for your sovereign guidance and hand in all things and in all ways we pray this in Jesus name amen